Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of Mercer Mondays. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about stopping the hate towards the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. I have a great group of people here with me today. Let's go ahead and start by having everyone introduce themselves. So my name is Julia Tra. I'm a sophomore, and I'm currently on the pre-nursing pathway and majoring in business management. My name is Daniel Mai. I am a freshman, and I am a public health major pre-med track. Hi, my name is Tiffany Hong. I am a biomedical engineering major on the pre-med track. Good morning, everybody. My name is Dr. Angela Booker. I'm the director for diversity and inclusion initiatives. Hi, my name is Eve Boma, and I am a freshman. I am currently majoring in biology on the pre-med track. Hi, my name is Michelle Zhang. I'm a junior, and I'm majoring in mechanical engineering. Hi, my name is Kenia. I'm a first year of biology major on the pre-med track. All right, thank you, everybody. So to start off today's episode, we're going to have Dr. Booker give us a little bit of an introduction on the issue. Dr. Booker, take it away. All right, good morning. So what I'll do is I'll just give you a little bit of insight to what we'll be talking about. Um, It's not a complete narrative by no means, but I did just want to provide some context for today's conversations. So Asian Americans are the fastest growing major racial or ethnic group in the United States. More than 20 million Asians live in the U.S. and almost all trace their roots back to 19 origin groups from East Asia, Southeast Asia, and the Indian subcontinent, according to the Pew Research Center. Throughout the past year in our COVID-19 pandemic state, and notably in the past few weeks, our country continues to witness and experience a rise in anti-Asian racism, xenophobia, and bias-motivated violence. As a result of the Asian Americans being blamed for the COVID-19 pandemic, we have witnessed an increase Excuse me, we have witnessed an increase in the number of Asian and Asian Americans facing racism and discrimination. According to Stop AAPI Hate, the nation's larger um, gatherer of COVID-19 related hate crimes against Asian Americans, they have recorded more than 3,795 incidents of racism and discrimination targeting Asian Americans between March of 2020 and February of 2021. Many face multiple types of discrimination, including verbal harassment, shunning, physical assault, and online harassment. Women have reported hate incidents two two times more than men. Incidents reports have come from all 50 states, including the District of Columbia. And in the same time frame, 32 incidents of hate were reported in Georgia. More recently, on March the 16th, March the 16th, a series of mass shootings took place in three spas in the Atlanta area. Eight people were killed, six of whom were Asian American women. Thank you. Alrighty, thank you, Dr. Booker. So just to start off, um, I would love for you all to just tell me a little bit about your life growing up, sort of where you're from. Um, did you live in a diverse community and like what your experience was like? I guess I'm assuming that everyone grew up in the United States. I don't even know that yet. So if you didn't, let me know. Um, so yeah. So I grew up in a metro Atlanta community, Gwinnett County. Most of y'all will know that place, but it wasn't as diverse. There were people of uh, from the black community, some from the Hispanic, but Asians were definitely the minority. Okay. Probably about, there were eight total Asians in my graduating class, wow. myself included. Okay. Yeah, Daniel? Yeah, um, I grew up in a very rural town called Hartwell, Georgia, which is located near like the border between Georgia and South Carolina. It was an extreme amount of like, not Oh, my school was not diverse. Yeah. <laughs> um, An extreme amount of not diverse. <laughs> not diversity. Yeah. yeah, basically. Um, for example, in my graduating class, I was one of two Asians to graduate. Oh. And but to sort of help mitigate that, I guess, I did have a lot of Asian friends from 
neighboring counties that we would all get together and just do a few like activities just as friends but we help all have that like bond of like being in sort of the same position right basically gotcha and but yeah that's how life was for me back home thank you um i can relate to what tiffany said i also grew up in gwinnett county my school actually had a lot more asians graduating um but i can say that in like my neighborhood and um just the neighborhoods around the schools it was not as diverse as you would think and there were a lot of students who came from outside of the county to our school and so i can kind of say that is diverse but not really so maybe your school is a little more diverse than like your immediate yeah. neighborhood or community. Yeah, so our neighborhood wasn't as diverse, but the school really did emphasize like diverse students, but the Asian community was like the minority. Gotcha. Um, so I grew up in Southern California actually oh, wow. until I was 15. Um, there were a lot of people of color around me, um, a lot of Asian peers, a lot of Hispanic um, peers also. So. Um, I was fortunate enough not to um, experience that much isolation from my peers. Um, but when I moved to Georgia when I was 15, I moved to Savannah and my school was um, majority of people were white. So that was kind of a big um, culture shock for me. So I kind of had to learn how to adjust. Was that like difficult or was it kind of just like, okay, this is my next step? Um, it was definitely different because I, probably because of the availability around me, um, there were a lot of, I had a lot of Asian friends. Um, so I kind of didn't, almost didn't know how to create relationships outside of that. So I had to learn how to um, kind of, yeah, maneuver my way around um, how other people viewed me. Right. Um, differently than when I was younger so yeah yeah that's interesting I guess for me just growing up in a diverse um high school community I do remember there were only like two Asian students that were in my graduating high school class too out of a hundred and something and so I was friends with them but I always wondered what their experience was like you know what I mean only two and they were actually cousins and so um, they were the only two Asian American families that were in our entire community. So what was that like? How you know how how are they being treated? Like everybody knew their mom because she owned the um, local like um, fashion and hair store in our community. But then again, like what stereotypes came with that? You know, did they feel isolated? Did they feel welcome? Did they feel included? You know, it's almost as off. They had to like kind of like self self isolate sometimes because the majority of our community was either black and white. And I think there might've been two or three other Hispanic families. Mm -hmm. And then like once those kids grew up and they're out, you know, they graduated and they don't, you know what I mean? Like then you don't see any more Asian representation in the entire school. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that was always looking back on it now, just hearing your experiences. I wonder, I have like so many questions I want to ask you like, how could your experience have been better? Right. And was it better like once you went to college and saw more diversity, yeah. especially being in rural Georgia, yeah, oh yeah. yeah, like what Daniel was saying. Yeah. Like being you had to go to a whole other county just to find, you know, like, right. you know, like friends and stuff, like, you know, have similar identities and backgrounds and cultures. Right. All right, so let's move on to the next question, which is, when did you first realize that people viewed you differently as an Asian American? I guess it kind of started, like, in elementary school, like, when people started, like, showing their actual personalities and they're not, 
not as scared to ask or like say things because mm-hmm. they don't have a filter at that age, I guess. But I remember having a couple kids come up to me and pull their eyes back. Uh, yeah. Oh and God. yeah, it was actually, it was, it didn't affect me as much just because I think I have personally a stronger personality than most. And I'm a fighter. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, so I immediately said, like, what are you doing? That's not even how most um, eye shapes are in the Asian community anyways. And they just thought it was a joke. They would come up with nicknames, like, my last name is Hong, so they'd call me, like, Hong Kong or, like, egg roll and stuff like that. And so, yeah, that's kind of how it was growing up in, like, elementary school and being, like, the stronger personality, that type that I was. Like, I started telling people, like, it's not okay. And once they got to know me, they realized that it wasn't right. And so I saw less and less of that, like, at growing up. So when you addressed that, people took it seriously for the most part? Or, like, probably listened? Honestly, they probably were shocked that I even said something. Because, you know, like, historically, people see Asian Americans as, like, the polite type. They're not going to fight back. They're Mm -hmm. the weaker race, I would say. People tend to view us. They don't expect us to say anything to them, let alone, like, tell them off. So I think they definitely took that into, like, factor and just, like, oh, if she's actually saying something, like, I probably should stop. My experiences growing up, I first experienced, like, being treated as an Asian American, also in elementary school. Um, I I was picked on a lot for being Asian American, but there's this one instance that I remember clearly from one of my, one of my teachers. Uh, It wasn't too bad of an experience, but looking back on it now, I, it wasn't too good of an experience either. (laughs) Um, She put me in a program where English was a second language. And I get that that would be a program to help me speak English better. But by the age of like five, six, seven, I've already, I was already pretty good with talking to the rest of my classmates about just regular things. And I still kind of wonder to this day why she put me into that class in the first place. But yeah, um, experiences were sort of similar to Tiffany's with like the picking on, but um, the difference between her and I is that I was like the shy type and um, I wouldn't really like try to say anything unless it actually like shook me to my core and then I would like tell them to stop and or else tell the teacher or else a few other things that would cause consequences for them. But mm. yeah. Can I just follow up that question for you? Yeah. So you so is English your first language or another language? Um, or are you like bilingual? I am bilingual. Mm-hmm. Um, I did grow up at home speaking Vietnamese Vietnamese, at first, but then um, I slowly like became more and more bilingual. And it's kind of crazy because going back to one one of my research projects in college was about dual language immersion. And you were right on pace because it's very difficult for anyone, especially one, five and six to be completely immersed in two different languages. You know what I mean? And the fact that you're learning, like you were actually very, very highly intelligent, like it takes a lot. And so that's why I always wonder 
with teachers? Was she doing that to further, I guess, like, you know, like not marginalize and oppress you, if that makes sense? Oh, because sure. five and six years old, you're you're pretty English proficient, you know, in kindergarten, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then to be able to speak two languages, that just shows the high level of intelligence. And so, you know, like being in a rural system, sometimes that those little incidents and those stories really, really bother me. Because I had something similar where, because I tested higher on certain aptitude tests, I was isolated from my peers. And that caused them to pick on me. So it kind of started, the teacher almost started the bullying. You know, if that makes sense? Yeah. Well, clearly the teacher had biases. Bias, yeah, of course. Like, lots of kids at that age are all over the place when it comes to, like, reading, speaking, whatever. Yeah, of course. But you're just assuming that as an Asian American, oh, it's an ESL problem, not, like, he's literally bilingual. Like, that's a completely different. Yeah. Yeah, I actually relate to Daniel about that. I remember being put in the first grade into the ESOL program. But the thing is, English is my first language. Mm-hmm. I only had problems with maybe like two, like two, like two words or like letters specifically, like W's. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I spoke mostly English. So why was I put into that program? Yeah. I think about that a lot too. Mm-hmm. And my older sister is actually more like Daniel, where she actually spoke Vietnamese first as a kid, and then she was put into that program, but she spoke, like, proficient English as well. So that really did, like, I resonated a lot with that story. Were the other students in that program also, like, students of color, or? Yeah, definitely. There were, I had a lot of peers that were friends of mine who were of Hispanic um, background, Mm -hmm. and they were actually also very proficient in English as well. So we were, we talk about it a lot these days. Like, when I go back home, we're just like, why did they put us in there when we spoke, like, a lot better English than some of the kids that aren't in it? So. Right, yeah. like further isolating you from your peers. Yeah. Like for what reason? Like for mm-hmm. no. Yeah. I just want to add something quick. This kind of unlocks a memory for me because <laughs> I remember the program. Mm-hmm. I don't remember even like why I was put there. I was like, why am I here? But now that I think about it. So you was well, like, yeah. you was you were the English second language too? No, I'm an immigrant. So immigrant. I guess that's why they put me in there. And I just realized, I guess that's why they put me in there because I was an immigrant. So it's just crazy because English is my first language and it's just odd how they isolate us like that because right. you're Haitian. Is it Haitian? Are you Haitian? Nigerian. Um, Nigerian. Nigerian. I'm like, <laughs> I see if I'm an expert. What age did you come to the States at? Um, when I was like five, four is. Okay. I will admit that like I've always kind of had like speech issues. Not really that it was a specific issue, I guess. It's just more like we just speak at a different accent at right. home. And I yeah. guess switching to an American accent was a bit of a trouble for me when I was younger. So it led to me not always being understood. And I guess mm-hmm. because of that, they thought I spoke a second language and needed like help speaking English, even though like English is my own right. language. Mm-hmm. We didn't even like speak at a different dialect because there is such a thing called like Pidgin English in Nigeria where um, it's just like, it's almost like how Jamaicans have their own kind of language. Yeah, yeah, but we didn't even have that. It was just literally a different accent. I'm about to say something that's sort of comical here. That, um, oh, like the one thing I didn't like about the ESOL program was that I had to miss recess back when oh. I was a child. But yeah, there were a lot more like pressing matters now. Now that I like look back upon it. No, but as a kid, like yeah. that is like socializing, yeah. and that's a really important part of like. I mean, my whole day revolved around recess when I was little. I never had to worry about that. And then recess, you know, it really 
opens up the gates for so many other things like socialization, language skills, like how to interact with other people, group dynamics. Right. You know, so that is actually is very integral. You know, I always wonder why we couldn't get recess in middle school. Well, <laughs> <laughs> high, school, high school, right? College, right. working oh, adults. I need recess. recess right well, you're sharing stories of being bullied by your peers and then you're being isolated from the time when everyone else gets to like better their friendships and socialize. So, like, it's just like one thing on top of it, like the snowball effect. I feel like they just assume if they didn't test you, because um, I remember my parents, when they were filling out documents, they had wrote their first language as Vietnamese and then second language as English. And so they automatically assumed that I um, had problems with English. And my first language is Vietnamese, but I grew up um, learning how to speak English because my parents wanted to prepare me prior to kindergarten and so I was learning Vietnamese and English at the same time. And so they had placed me in the, the ESOL program for, I think, a, a week or so. It was very, it was like super, super short. And they had realized, oh, she doesn't have any problems speaking English. That's kind of weird. Mm -hmm. But they had assumed because my parents had struggled with English mm -hmm. and they needed a translator. And so I feel like they weren't aware that the children could be different from the parents coming in. Um, my experience uh, was, I mean, I, I didn't really have a defining incident where I felt like I was viewed differently um, just because of my background when I was younger. But um, I feel like just over the years, a lot of things have built up. Like, um, for instance, when I would go out with my parents to run errands or something, like, um, my mom can speak English, but she has an accent. So some of the looks people would give, like out of frustration or um, maybe condescension, like I, those would just kind of keep me down sometimes. And then that just kind of defined how I would um, compose myself in front of other people. Like I had to be good at English. I had to be an efficient translator. So like, I had to work extra hard to kind of prove myself. So you translated for your parents? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So our next question is, what stereotypes or microaggressions have you faced based upon your race or ethnicity? I said like a few things from elementary school, but there were like other phrases growing up as well. Like some kids would just come up to me and be like, hey, can you make me some fried rice? I was like, what do I look like to you? But um, yeah, and even phrases just like, you're pretty for an Asian. Those like were just really uncomfortable. Like why am I not just pretty? Like, why am I pretty for an Asian? Like, everyone's beautiful. Why are you specifically saying that just based on, like, my race? And I just felt that was really frustrating, and I was like, okay. <laughs> but, yeah, I was, at that point, I kind of was just like, okay, I'm not just gonna, I'm not gonna deal with them anymore, so I just kind of, like, push them out. Like, don't really associate myself with them, and I realized, like, uh, recently, just like I probably should have said something. Like I used to say stuff when I was a lot younger, like more, like direct about it. But for that instance, I should have said something, right. and that's kind of one of the things I look back on. It's like I could have done more in that situation, and I hear a lot of people I like deal with that too. Just like hearing things like my older sister, she I think she went to like the grocery store or something and she could hear murmuring like from behind her be like wow she's had she has like a big butt for an Asian and I was like first of all why are you looking at her butt but um <laughs> but yeah you know what I mean it's yeah. just yeah
uh, first of all, I'm so sorry that happened to you. <laughs> um, but um, as an Asian American male, I can say that I haven't had as many instances of like, like being like looked at or just like being talked about. But yeah, growing up, I did mention a few things about me being picked on in elementary school, but the, like it's still like, like persevered, I guess, throughout middle and high school. Like I remember a few times where people would like come up to me and basically say like the could you cook me fried rice and um, a lot of my like friends back home would like make Asian jokes and I would just go along with it but as time and time went on I quickly realized that wasn't right and so I told them that I wasn't comfortable with it and they were extremely understanding about it which I'm extremely grateful for but thinking back upon like how these Asian like jokes and stereotypes just keep getting kept getting like more and more frequent and how it just did nothing to stop it it just kind of like built up and so I had to say something about it and fortunately I had it was only my friends that would make those kinds of jokes which isn't doesn't seem like a fortunately but if it was like some random stranger that said to me i wouldn't have the audacity to like say something about it because i didn't know them because i was still that shy kid do you think your friends felt comfortable making those jokes because they thought oh like you're on good terms so they thought it would be okay i'm not justifying it at all yeah. but i mean it just the ignorance yeah. was making them feel like yeah. it was justified yeah you're totally fine um i guess because they made a joke, the jokes a few times, and I just kind of went along with it and even made them at my own expense just to, like, probably just beat them to it mm -hmm. until, like, I just didn't want that to happen anymore. But, yeah, I guess they were both, uh, it, my friends were both ignorant and just, like, saying that, oh, it's okay, because he's making the jokes, too, mm -hmm. until I said something. Yeah. And can I just interject here? And I know we keep talking about, like, you know, your past experiences, but, like, currently or at Mercer, have you experienced any of these? And, and this is for everybody, you know, just to add on when you answer the question. Um, at Mercer, I haven't had any sort of, like, Asian-American, like, bias against me. Coming to Mercer and seeing all these like culture clubs, specifically like VSA and Mercer Asia, um, it really like struck me because growing up, as we as you guys know, um, I was one of two Asians that graduated. So seeing like clubs for Asians here, it really like resonated with me. But it's like I could find a, I found a place that I like. I I originally thought similarly to Daniel up until the beginning of this year, actually the beginning of this academic school year, you know, that was when the, like the pandemic was at its peak. Everyone was so fearful. 
I came back and I was standing in line at Chick-fil-A with my roommates who are also Asian. And one of them points out to me, like whispers to me, like, hey, those group of guys are like staring at us very uncomfortably, like up and down, like giving us looks. And it wasn't the type of looks like, you know, where like as a female, you can kind of tell like whether or not it's like they're like sizing you up as like, like you're attractive or something like that. It was a different type of look that we were like feeling and it definitely made us uncomfortable. And that's probably one of the only things I'm glad to say that's happened. But the fact that it happened here at Mercer where it's supposed to be, we're supposed to be here for higher learning. And so that did come as a shock. And so, yeah. I haven't had an experience similar to that at Mercer here. Like she, like Tiffany said, um, Mercer is very diverse. We emphasize diversity and inclusion with the culture clubs and stuff like that, which I'm glad that we do. Um, but I can say that I feel like sometimes our friends, if they do say something, it's probably because they're uncomfortable or they're comfortable with saying it. I've had um, some instances where my friends would make a joke and say something about like fried rice um, because I can cook and stuff. And so they'll make those jokes and it can feel uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable because um, as a friend, you want to say something just so they know, so they can acknowledge it and learn. But at the same time, um, they might become defensive and say, oh, I was just joking. You know, I mean well. So I feel like acknowledging it and being aware of what we say to our friends and um, saying something when they do say something wrong can be effective towards minimizing the stereotypes and microaggressions. I just second what everyone else said, um, especially what Dana said about beating them to it when they um, tell a joke like that. It's like, um, for example, when they would ask, like, where are you from? Where are you really from? Um, and like, just to humor them, I'd say Korea, and then they would be like, North or South. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just, I don't know whether it's out of ignorance or just like as a joke, but. I mean, but that stuff was great, you know, just even giving historical context to it, because like you said, curriculum is a big part of debunking and educating so many people. And you just think about the curriculum that you're being taught between K through 12. You know, oftentimes you don't see diverse literature for most people until you get to college. So you've gone 18 years unless your parents or a community expose you to it with sometimes as minorities, like a one paragraph, you know, or Black History Month, you get the one program in Black History Month, you know what I mean? And so that to me was always dehumanized and hurtful. And now you see even with the curriculum now, they want to remove like these cultural, these cultural activities that really helps exposes everyone and helps people to learn together. They want to remove it from the curriculum and they want to rewrite U.S. history and not, you know, that makes sense. And so that's always a, even a battle we have, even in higher education. How do you diversify the curriculum? How do you bring in authors from different racial identities, different religious identities, different sexual orientations and genders? Because again, that exposure, and oftentimes you may not have that direct exposure, you can at least have it through the curriculum, through literature. But that's yeah. a whole other part of the conversation for another day. Like that exposure is definitely important because immigrants these days are like still facing the same issues that they have in the past. Like there are third generation Asian Americans in this country, but they're still seen as foreigners, like not even Mm -hmm. citizens of the United States. And there was one speech by Congressman Andy Kim, where he was sitting on a train, 
that microaggressions like that, like it's it's so stupid, like when you like really think about this stuff, but people really don't understand like the um internalized impacts that it really has on people because like you're saying, like you become desensitized to it and like people keep doing like little small things, but it really like keeps picking away at you on the inside, I think. And I think that's something that really goes um, unnoticed and unrecognized. Talking about the internal impact, there's so little education in the U.S. Like you're all talking about how you had to be the one to tell people that this isn't appropriate. But with diversity and inclusion, like education and advocacy is a really important um, aspect. And I would say there's little to none of that in the American education system, like learning about the history of very overt racism and discrimination towards the Asian American community. Um, and then why these jokes and like these comments are completely unacceptable. Um, yeah, that was just a thought. Well, you know, the thing with the model minority myth that came about in the 90s and the 2000s, you know, when there was like, in terms of like STEM, you know, and even before that, because like there was this, if you were of, if you were foreign born, the only way, like, you intentionally the United States recruited people of Asian descent to fill like science, technology, engineering, mathematics jobs, right? So if you intentionally, you know, basically, you know, recruit individuals for those particular jobs, you start to kind of reinforce the stereotype, if that makes sense. Right. And then you start to hear like different things in the paper and the news and the media about this Asian American students, we as kid in math, they're scoring higher on the SAT and ACT. And you kind of start to perpetuate this, you know, this, this particular narrative, yeah. and then it kind of sticks. You know what I mean? And, you know, that's kind of how stereotypes and generalizations start to go. But again, like I was talking to a professor, it really and students can say, too, that if you can speak to it or not, because it's just automatically ascription to intelligence. So even that's, quote unquote, supposed to be a positive stereotype, sometimes it's much more detrimental because now you feel like you always having to live up to this higher expectation compared to the other students in the classrooms. And if you don't get it, then there's something wrong with you. But again, it was already a bias already set in place before you even walk through the door, you know, if that makes sense. Whereas I think you talked about it last week, whereas if you're a person of black or African descent, that you're automatically assumed to be dumb or, or, or incompetent. So then you're like, you're having to always push twice as hard to get even over the bar, you know what I mean? And so again, it still puts you in a situation where you're stressed out, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, you're exhausted because you're either trying to live up to the bar or trying to get over the bar and have people to see you as, as a person. And it's crazy because, some of it can just be simply resolved with education and respect, but I think that just takes work on people's part that they don't, aren't sometimes always willing to do. It's mm -hmm. easier to live in your, what is it, ignorance. Right. Ignorance is bliss, sometimes right. people say. I would like to branch off from that. Like, I remember, like, in history class as a kid, there would be maybe one small paragraph Mm -hmm. of just how Chinese Americans helped build or Chinese immigrants helped build the transcontinental railroad. Yeah. And that was it. But if you actually take the time to look back in history, there were so many incidences where like Chinese immigrants would build our core infrastructure, especially in the West Coast. But you see a lot of retaliation by the people that were already here, like the white community and stuff like that, who oh, went people. over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you like you hear instances like instances where they feel that their jobs are being taken away. It's the same thing that's still happening now, especially like continuing with immigrants. They feel like their jobs are being taken away and that it's all because of these like dirty immigrants that they always stereotype and have been stereotypes for years. And the government and media have always 
taken a part in that, especially with like propaganda, mm-hmm. spreading like false uh, statistics and continuing off with the model minority with the Immigration Act of like, I think it's 1965. It prioritized highly skilled workers from foreign countries to come in and fill that void mm-hmm. that Dr. Booker said. And that was when I think his name was William Peterson, the person that coined the term model minority. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for him to like just look at that, just like, oh, all of these highly skilled people, like if they can do it, then everyone else can do it. If you don't do it, then you're just lazy. But that's not the case. Like as Asian Americans, like we have the privilege of not being systematically dehumanized as the black community. And that is just awful. But it's also terrible that we're being pitted, like minorities are being pitted against mm-hmm. each other right. based on like because of the government, the media won't like share the like share light to those facts. Right. And that's actually absolutely frustrating, yeah. you know. And the lady that he was sitting next to just kept telling him to go back to his country. But he was born and raised here, like so many of us. And even those who were like naturalized, they are still seeing like they're still being prodded against like, oh, where do your loyalties lie? And that happens in our government. Like if you read stories on the, you say like Reddit and stuff like other anonymous sites, you see a lot of that. And that's also another thing that like happens to other minorities, like historically, like I don't want to branch in too much, but after 9-11, you saw a lot of hate go towards the Muslim community. And I have a roommate who is Muslim and has told me stories of where her mom would be fearful of her to wear her hijab out just to get in the car because they were fearful that they would get shot at or uh, attacked just because of that. And you see a lot of that, not even just the Muslim community, just people who were perceived to be Muslim. So members of the South Asian community and such. Um, yeah, so I just, um, going off of what Tiffany said, um, the stuff in history books, like I always felt like, um, I was always looking for stuff about Korean Americans because um, I'm really proud of my culture. I really mm-hmm. want to see representation in it, but I don't think I ever remember. I took AP World History um, my sophomore year and I don't remember anything, really maybe a paragraph about um, Asians and their role. Um, and I also, um, about the perpetuation of the model minority, I don't know about other um, Asian cultures, but Koreans work really, really hard. They study super hard. Their commitment to education is really high. So I hate that that the white supremacist ideal of the model minority myth is that kind of takes away from the work that Asians do because they it just kind of raises the bar to where it invalidates the work that um, Asians put into. I think that says a lot about erasing like the discrimination, how like Asian Americans have been used as sort of like expendable resources. Honestly, you talked um, about building important infrastructure, used as cheap labor resources, and then being excluded, like the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, then Chinese immigration was banned almost entirely which was the only United States law we've ever seen in history to prevent immigration on the basis of race. So those are completely erased, but then we perpetuate this myth that like Asian Americans are just completely set, you know, like have it, like are just coasting, really benefiting off of like American culture, government, whatever, which I just think is absolutely ridiculous. 
in these conversations, this is why I like the podcast, because you get to hear diverse opinions. And I think with the podcast, listeners want to hear, no, this happened in my family, too. This, too, makes it so much more real and so much more tangible. Right. And I love how you and Tiffany brought in the facts and the historical context, because that is important. Every day that's been on the news, every day you see it in the culture, you know, every day is in the workplace. And so sometimes I think that's what makes it so hard for any minority, anybody that's been targeted or oppressed to actually excel and be great in America, no matter where you are. Because you're constantly having to jump over like 15 to 20 hurdles. Right. You know what I mean? Just to get paid. Oh, okay, I'm just fine. <laughs> All right, everyone. It's editing Emma here. And we had such a good conversation this week that I'm going to have to go ahead and cut it off for today because we just had so much content to work with. And I know what you're thinking. Emma, that's crazy. We didn't even get to the most important part of the discussion. And you're right, which is why you have no other choice but to tune in next week to hear Tiffany, Daniel, Julia, Michelle, Afoma, Kania, Dr. Booker, and I discuss the recent shootings in Atlanta and the increase in hate crimes against the Asian American Pacific Islander community since the onset of the pandemic. And while I'm here, I'm going to go ahead and plug our Instagram, which is the best way to keep up with all of the activities that we're organizing in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. So follow us on Instagram at MU Diversity Inclusion, and be sure to tune in next week to hear the rest of this conversation.